You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I invite you to turn to Psalm 2 as we continue our summer in the Psalms. If you don't have a Bible, grab the ones in the seat in front of you and find Psalm 2 on page 448. We've laid a framework for the Psalms, reminding us that the Psalms are not a hymn book where we just pick and choose our favorite one, but instead understand that it's 150 Psalms organized in five books that essentially reveal the character of God, the condition of man and God's plan for redemptive history. A couple weeks ago, Lee dug into Psalm 1, last week Chad dug into Psalm 55, and I'm going to dig into Psalm 2. If you look at Psalm 2, you can see at the beginning, verse 1, there's no superscript above verse 1. There's no words that explain what the psalm is by the original author. There's no information about the author or the history or the context. And so because of that, we might be left wondering who the author is, and yet we're, we're not left there, are we? There's 65 other books of the Bible, and we've been learning as a church over the last several months and years that the entire Bible interprets itself. And so when we remember this, we look to the New Testament and come to the realization that the New Testament references Psalm 2 nearly 20 times. And in fact, you can write this down and look at it later, Acts chapter 4 verses 25 through 26 tell us that David is the author of Psalm 2. Now why is that important? Because that provides historical context and the historical context is that David only had scripture that was Genesis through Deuteronomy. At the time of David, that was most likely all of the written scripture that David had. Why that's important is that as David is writing this psalm, that's the theology that formally he understands. And so as he's writing phrases, as he's writing concepts, we understand that he's primarily informed only by the first five books of the Bible. Now, he's also informed by the direct revelation of God through the Davidic covenant. You can write down 2 Samuel 7, verses 10 through 16. We know that David references the Davidic covenant because of phrases and concepts that we see in Psalm 2. So why that's important is that it informs us David's context. But what Acts 4 also tells us is that David was writing, listen to this, by the Holy Spirit. And so even though David only had certain concepts of theology, the Holy Spirit was moving him to write topics and themes that would be developed in the rest of the Holy Spirit's book. In fact, listen to this quote. While David did not have all the Bible to inform his theology, the ultimate author of Scripture, which is the Holy Spirit, by the way, certainly moved David to write concepts and themes that would be further developed through the rest of Scripture. And you can study 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 to show us that the Holy Spirit, like wind, 
moved to the sails of the human authors of Scripture so that the ultimate author is God himself. So that gives us the historical context. That gives us the background for Psalm 2, but it also tells us that Psalm 2 is Revelation 12 in poetic form. Isn't that awesome? The, the, the last chapter of Revelation that we unpacked in the series that we've put on pause for Revelation was entitled, A Tale as Old as Time. It's the story in Revelation 12 of all of history. And David is doing the same thing that John did in Revelation 12 by teaching us all of history in poetic form. And the gift that he gives us is lenses through which we can view Target, the White House agenda, and rainbow flags. So here's the big idea that you can see in your notes. We need to use these three stanzas. Stanzas are verses in a song or groups of lines of poetry that come together for categories. He uses these three stanzas for lenses so that we can live the Christian Let me read Psalm 2, and then we'll unpack it together. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. (laughs) He who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This poem or this song has the theme of a battle. We're going to look at three aspects of the battle. We're going to look at the battlefield. We're going to look at the battle itself. And then we're going to look at the blessing. Let's look at the battlefield itself. And the context of a battlefield is important. When, when you study American history or when you study world history and you study the, the great battles of history, the historians will actually give all of the details of the actual battlefield. What, what were the sides that were present? What was the terrain? What was the objective of the two armies? And, and by doing so, we see the advantage and the disadvantage of the actual battle. And that's what David is doing. And he first unpacks the sides of the battlefield. Who are the enemies that are assembling on the battlefield? And he describes them in verse one, the the nations and the peoples. 
The, the nations and the peoples in the Old Testament typically refer to Gentiles, but what you can write down is that these are describing people outside the covenant community, outside of a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. Here's a translation that I commend to you of a different way to understand what the original Hebrew is communicating in verse one. Why are those outside the covenant community restlessly meditating on what will never put them at an advantage? You see that? That's what's behind the curtain. That's what's behind all that we see going on around us. That's what we see behind us in history. That's what we can anticipate ahead of us in the future is that the people outside of the covenant community are restless. That's what the term means that's translated rage. The imagery that I think of is when you go to the zoo and you see a Bengal tiger just going back and forth and they're locking eyes with you as though you're their prey. The nations and the people are constantly going back and forth and in the original language, that's the big picture. And then David gets more specific and lets us know what that tiger is thinking. And what that tiger is thinking is, you can write this down, he's meditating. Why, why that's important, even though it's translated plot here, is because if you go back to Psalm 1, which on most of your Bibles, it's on the same page. Look at verse 2. It says, the person who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, he what? Meditates. This is the distinction between people in the covenant community and those outside of the community. And that is, what do you meditate on? This is it. Friends, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then the question you must ask yourself is, what consumes you? What do you meditate on? Because I, as I read the social media posts, I think there's a lot of professing Christians who are actually meditating on the wrong things. I would commend to you a book. There's the full version and then the concise version. The author is Carl Truman. The, the, the big version is the rise and triumph of the modern self. Mind blown. His condensed version is strange new world. But well, what he does in these chapters of dense research is show how humanity made a shift generations ago from thinking according to standards of a society, from thinking according to absolute truth, to what do I think, what do I feel, and more of a psychological, therapeutic approach to life. And so by the time you understand all of the unpacking of generations, it's no wonder we have multicolored rainbow flags for an entire month in our society today. It's because we have rejected absolute truth. We have rejected accountability. And the starting point of meditation is me and what I feel and what fulfills me. And what David is saying is that's a tale as old as time. It's not new for us in 2023. 
And so the question for us as Christians is, on what are you meditating? The word actually means the cooing of a dove. We start to hear those types of sounds in our neighborhood by those incessant devil birds. And for some reason, they get up at 4 o'clock and they're like... And you just want to... No, I would never do that. I'm going to get banned from YouTube on that one. But it's that idea as it's continual. It's a part of your life. It's rhythmic. It's who you are. And on this battlefield, there are those outside of the covenant community that are meditating on their own interests, their their own understanding. And what is their objective? Well, we'll get there in verse 3. But but the other side of the battlefield is their enemy. And it's at the end of verse 2. It's against the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his anointed. Do you see it in the text? Now, the English version, most of yours, will capitalize the letter A, and that's some license by the translators because they understand the rest of the story. But that's probably not what David was thinking. David was probably not thinking of Jesus Christ. He was thinking of 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16. He was thinking of actually what the concept of Messiah is. In, in the Hebrew, it's M-S-H, Messiah. What Messiah was in the Old Testament is the anointed one. Here, here's what it was formally. It was the official recognition or appointing of an important office. Messiahs were either prophets or priests or kings. And if you've been with us at Ascend for a while, I hope you can see a theme there. David was thinking that there will be an appointed one. There there will be someone who will be the enemy of the kings of the world. And they are assembling against him and his representatives. It's interesting that they say they set themselves against. The word literally in the original is above, which I think is fascinating when you start to consider the terrain of the battlefield. So we've seen the sides of the battlefield. There's the outside of the covenant community, and then there's the God himself and his representatives. But then the terrain of the battlefield is very subtle, but it's right here in the text. Look at verse 2. The kings, look at the next phrase. Would you look at it in the text? The kings of the earth. Isn't that subtle? Now it does say the kings and the rulers, and if all we're looking at is that, it sounds like these are important influencers, people of great authority. And you might think, whoa, this this is bad news, but they are just of the earth. Look down at verse 4. They're coming against the one who's in the heavens. There's absurdity that David is revealing here as he reveals that they're assembling together. They're coming together, but, but at best they're of the earth. Yahweh is in the heavens, and what they're doing is they're assembling themselves literally in the Hebrew above. They're, they're thinking that they can somehow get above the Lord and above his anointed, but they're, they're of the earth. 
And it says that they're taking counsel together. Do you see it in the text? This is an ancient Near East concept. Kings would recognize that they were overpowered by another force and they would come together. They would develop coalitions. You can write down Genesis 14. That was where Sodom and Gomorrah joined with three other kings, and there was five kings against four, and it's a fascinating story. Or you can write down also uh, in 2 Kings chapter 16, Ahaz was afraid of Syria and Israel coming to attack him, and so instead of him trusting in Yahweh, he gathered another king, Assyria. So by the very fact that they're assembling a coalition, they're acknowledging, although not completely, that they're overpowered, and yet they still think that they can win. The, the imagery is like when you, when you fly over the Midwest. You ever look out your window of your airplane and see all of the land that stretches out? And, and in that massive amount of land, you see these little dots that are towns, and you know that in those towns, there's social context, popular people, unpopular people. There's businesses, some that are successful, some that are struggling. There's mayors and authority. And in that town, that's everything. That's important. That's, that's how, what gets people up in the morning. That's people's identity. And yet, you can see from the airplane that it's just a dot on the land. That's the imagery that David is using here as you think about this battle that is as old as time. Just understand the terrain. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115.3. He does whatever he pleases. And at best, these powers are of the earth. So there's the battlefield sides, there's the battlefield terrain, and then there's the battlefield objective. Because they are meditating on their own thoughts and on themselves, look at what they say in verse 3. Let us burst their cords apart and cast away their cords from us. They think they're in slavery. They think they're in bondage. They think that removing accountability will actually be freedom when the exact opposite is true. In fact, you can write down Romans 6, 20 through 22. The Apostle Paul says, true freedom is found in slavery to God. Oh, friends, this is the battle that is going on around us. This is the objective of the enemy because they're so focused on themselves, because they don't want accountability, because it's psychology and therapy that's driving their motivation. They've twisted reality. Here's a quote. Because they're always looking for an opportunity to remove accountability so that they can do what is right in their own eyes, they think that slavery is not freedom. You can write down these verses, the judges' verses that I think are up on the screen. This is the recurring phrase. Because there was no king in Israel, everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes, that is the world today. Whatever you say you are is who you are. Whatever your truth is, is your truth. Friends, this is not new. This is a tale as old as time, and it is a battle. And David is revealing this to us in poetic form. 
It's interesting. When you look back at Genesis 3-6, the foundation for sin was Eve looking at something, wanting that something, not submitting to God's design, and taking it. And that continued all throughout Genesis. It continues all throughout the Bible. And it continues today. Friends, this is the battle that is going on. And listen, this is not an impulsive strategy by the enemy. This is a very strategic approach to battle. And they think that they're going to win. But there's a clue in verse 1 that they've got no shot. It's the word vain. The word vain means no chance of advantage. And I've spent a lot of time here, beloved, because this is the foundation. As we think about Target, the White House agenda, as we think about the rainbow flags, this is it. This is where we must start. This is the beginning of the lenses that we need. This is stanza number one, but stanza number two is the actual battle, and it's relatively anticlimactic. Verse 4 says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The word literally means to laugh mockingly. And then the next term, derision, actually means to mock with a stutter. Isn't that interesting? I'll just pause right here and just consider what's being said. You remember when we were kids and we mocked somebody else and we bullied them? That's the imagery that is communicated here. So I, I got to be honest with you. I, that kind of makes me struggle when I think that this is God doing it. But what I have to do is I have to be reminded that God is perfectly moral. God is perfectly just. And so even though I have a lot of examples of where this was done sinfully and where I've even done that myself, that's not what God's doing. He's doing so justly. He starts with this mocking approach. It's kind of like to me what I remember with Guardians of the Galaxy one. Sorry, I had to get Marvel in. It's Father's Day. Give me a, toss me a bone here. We're going tonight. So in the, in the first one, there's this powerful character named Ronan. And, and Ronan just can move his little hammer and breaks a guy's neck. But then Thanos turns around. And he's sitting in his throne. He doesn't get off his throne because he knows he can just snap, ironically. And Ronan would be done. And that's the imagery here, is that God, through this imagery that David is conveying, is showing how powerful, how awesome, how authoritative it is. He is. In fact, the, the, the word and the name Lord that is translated in these verses is not Yahweh, it's actually Adonai, which communicates authority. That's the imagery. So let's not get hung up in the details of what it says the Lord is doing. Let's recognize that the behavior is reflecting an absolute authoritative God. But you know what's interesting is he doesn't stay here. And this is a side of God that I think even makes us more uncomfortable. It says in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury. 
We don't like to think of a God like that. We usually like to say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Let me give you a passage to confront that temptation. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Oh, friends, the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And even though in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see a lot of stories of Jesus healing and being compassionate, that truly puts God's character on display. But so do his woes, so do his pronouncements of judgment. And so we must understand that as this tale as old as time is unfolding, that God does have fury. He has anger. He has what should terrify you apart from his salvation through Jesus Christ. God is not some cosmic being we can construct or fit into our expectations. David intends to reveal God for who he is because that should elicit within us a response. Beloved, one of the reasons why the the generation that is graduating from high school into college is walking away, air quotes, from the faith is because they haven't been introduced to the God of Scripture. They've been introduced to some pseudo-God, some God who makes social sense, some God who is easily approachable. No, 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 no. That's why Leviticus is one of my favorite books of the Bible. There's reason why all of that bloodshed was required because for a holy God to be able to even receive a sinful man requires bloodshed. Should be mine, but instead it was Christ's. This is the battle. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He mocks them. He responds to them in his anger and in his fury. Why? Because he knows what they don't know. Look at what it says in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. This is fascinating because for us who have the New Testament, we would say, oh, well, of course, because on God's holy hill on Zion was the temple, and yet the temple had not been constructed at the time of the writing of Psalm 2. So what was David speaking of? Well, what David was speaking of is an initial concept that he had, which was based on 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16. If you look at that Davidic covenant, you see that God promised to David that an offspring of his would build the house of God, would build the dwelling place of God. And David was anticipating and looking forward to that. And so he writes what he knew, but the Holy Spirit will reveal it was never intended to be a building in a specific place here on earth. It was always intended to be the entire earth. Revelation 21 verse 3 tells us. So we see a down payment on what would be developed in the rest of Scripture by the statement that the Lord makes. But then look at verse 7. David begins to get into some biblical theology. David says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. 
Now, now David is speaking here with only the context that he had, which was the reference that God made to him that Solomon would be viewed as God's son. And so David is saying, I trust you for the fulfillment of your decree to me through your covenant that my son will be your son. And he is celebrating that. And he is actually using that as a source of confidence against the enemy that is assembling against God and his Messiah. But there's more to the story, isn't there? And the Holy Spirit will reveal that through the rest of Scripture. Let me give you some verses that you can look at later. Genesis 5, 1 through 3. Through a genealogy that we often skip over, we are told that Adam was referred to as the Son of God. In Exodus 4.22, where Adam failed, Adam did not exercise the dominion that he was intended to exercise. Remember, Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion over it, because that was always intended to be the temple of God, the entire earth. Adam failed. So another son candidate rose up, and that was Israel itself. You can write down Exodus 4.22. Israel is referred to as God's firstborn son. And Israel was intended to start with the plot map, with the plots on the map of the Middle East and where the nation of Israel was supposed to be. But that was only supposed to be the start. It was supposed to expand to the ends of the earth. And I'll show that to you here in the text. And Israel failed by not obeying the Mosaic Covenant. So God knew that that was going to happen. God ordained that that would happen. So another son candidate arose, 2 Samuel 7, 14. That was the descendant of David that David thought would be Solomon. But we know from the New Testament, it wasn't Solomon. And then Daniel 7, 13 through 14 tells us that there will be another son that will be given an everlasting kingdom. The scope of the fulfillment of this promise is given in verses 8 and 9. Look at what it says. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Would you, would you look at those two verses, those two words, please? This is fascinating. Because what David does here and then the Holy Spirit in partnership is he uses Old Testament concepts and then New Testament concepts to explain what this is all about. The Old Testament concepts are the words heritage and possession. You can write down Genesis chapter 17 and verse 8. These two Hebrew terms are used together to describe the land, physical land of Israel in the Old Testament. The Jews held strongly to that promise, to the land of Israel. The land was so important to Old Testament and transitional Testament Israel, but it was never intended to be the ultimate endgame. The heritage and the possession of the land was always intended to be symbolic. It was always intended to be the beginning of the fulfillment of God's original plan. It was never intended to be plots on a map that were limited. It was supposed to be the ends of the earth, Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. And we see that by the New Testament imagery that is in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron 
and dashed them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I love this. You know what's interesting is these same concepts are found. You can write this down. Revelation 12, verse 5. I told you this is revelation in poetic form. If you read Revelation 12, verse 5, you see these exact terms and concepts. That it is the child who will be born from the woman that the dragon is waiting to devour, who will be given the rule of the nations, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. It is Jesus Christ. That's why they capitalize the A of the anointed. And so what we see is that this has always been God's plan. This tale of old, as old as time is a guaranteed victory for Yahweh's Messiah and for his representatives as we celebrate the victory through Christ. Oh, I want to just tease you by planting the seed and then we can un- you can unpack it later, but we are described as prophets, priests, and kings in the New Testament. First Peter, chapter two, verse nine, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Because of Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the true, capital A, anointed one, Messiah, as we trust in him, as we receive salvation through him, then we become prophets, priests, and kings under the over-shepherding of Jesus Christ. And we then experience the victory and perform the victory through the, the, the armor of God, Ephesians 6, over the enemy that seems so powerful. No wonder he who sits in the heavens laughs. No wonder he is so angry that these kings and rulers of the earth shake their fist at him, meditating on themselves and not him. The battle's anticlimactic. The victory is guaranteed. It was inaugurated in the person and work of Jesus Christ here on earth and it continues today until that glorious day when his kingdom and his temple will be found from sea to shining sea in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the battle. So stanza one is the battlefield, stanza two is the battle. Stanza three is just as important because this is where the application comes in. Stanza three is the blessing the application of what has been learned. And what you can see at the end of verse 12 is the word blessed. You can see it right there in the text. And if you go back to Psalm 1 and look at verse 1, you see that's the first word in verse 1. That brings both of these psalms together and bookends them. The sandwich bread is blessing. The sandwich meat is what is required for us to experience true blessing. Now, when when I say blessed, or when you read blessed, what what do you think of? How how do you define blessed? Well, maybe you do so in a horizontal fashion. Maybe it's the number of cars that you have. Maybe it's a relationship status. Maybe it's something that the world offers. And truly, those are expressions of blessed, but they have their limitations, don't they? What these final verses reveal is what true blessing is, and it can be summed up in this way, and that is the path of wisdom. Would you write that down? What blessed in verse one of of Psalm one and what blessed here in verse 12 of Psalm two is communicating is to walk in the path of wisdom. 
And I want us to see three important aspects of this application, access to this path, alternatives to this path, and then the advantage of this path. They're all found in the text. How do we get access to the path of wisdom? Well, look at verse 10. Be wise. Be wise. The word wisdom is the practical application of God's word to everyday life. That's what wisdom is. If you want to know what Solomon is talking about over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs, be wise. Wisdom is the principal thing. Wisdom is the practical application of God's word to everyday life. This is where it starts. It it starts by acknowledging that what is found in this precious book is authoritatively God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. Even the parts that are hard to understand, even the parts that are very convicting. It begins with that and then it moves to warning. Now we actually recognize we must respond Verse 11 says, we must serve the Lord with fear. The word serve is a religious term. It means to perform activities motivated by worship. And that's why it's used in conjunction with the word fear. It's the Hebrew term yirah. You'll see this all throughout Psalms. You'll you'll see this term, fear, over and over and over again. And it's one of those terms that is defined by context. If it's negative, that means that it is an afraid fear. If it's positive, that means to hold something in high value, in awe and respect. And that's the context here. So it begins by recognizing the authority of God's word. It moves to a place of recognizing who God is and actually valuing him. But then finally, access to the way of wisdom is this, a personal response. Look at verse 12. Kiss the son. I don't know about you, but I've read this so many times and I'm thinking, what? Kiss the son? The concept in the original is to do so repeatedly on the feet of the son. And when you think of this in an ancient context, this would have communicated submission. Beloved, the access to the path of wisdom, which is true blessing, is to submit to Jesus Christ. You do so by meditating not on your own needs and your own self, but surrendering that and meditating on the things of God by acknowledging and agreeing with what he says he is and who we are and that the only way to reconcile that that gap between us is the completed work of Jesus Christ and we come by faith in him, asking him to forgive our sins and committing our lives to King Jesus. That's the access. The alternative is, frankly, scary. It says, verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is God. Oh, friends, many will come to God on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we show up at Ascend Church on a regular basis? Didn't we serve in kids' ministry? Didn't we come to Holy Smokes? Didn't we give tithes and offerings? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the rest of the New Testament says, he tells you, enter into the eternal darkness, the lake of fire. Why? 
Because it was religion. Because it wasn't relationship. Because you did not gain access through Christ. You tried to do it yourselves. Oh, friends, this is a horrible and a tragic and an eternal alternative. But then third, I love this, the advantage. The advantage is true blessing. As God has designed it. The concept of prosper and wisdom go hand in hand. You saw this back in Psalm 1. Everything he does, he prospers. And, and, and some have really made a mess of that statement. Equating prosper with health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what prosper means. You can write down Joshua 1, 7 and 8 as Joshua and the, is, is, and the Jews were getting ready to head into the promised land. God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not let the words of this law depart from your mouth. Meditate on them day and night. That's wisdom. For then you will have good success. For then you will be prosperous. What is prosperous? It is living a life on the path of wisdom. So that when you lose your job, you have the right lenses. When you're released from your dream job, you have the right lenses. When you have a miscarriage, you have the right lenses. When you are single past what you thought you would be single, you have the right lenses. When your parents die, when your grandparents pass away, when you find out that you have cancer and on and on and on, that is what this life is. That is the corrupt world in which we live since Genesis 3. The path of wisdom keeps you from derailing. It's a superpower. Nothing can get you. The enemy can't get you. That's the advantage. That's what being blessed is. But here's what I love about this. It first reminds us that the White House agenda that is in play right now, that what is being represented by Pride Month, that what is being promoted by the leadership of Target is straight from the pit of hell. It is. There's no other way to, to, to explain that Truthfully, there's no social explanation for it. There's no human explanation for it. It is from the smoke that rides from the pit from hell. And this passage tells us that, but, but listen to this. There's another side of it. There's hope. There's hope for the White House. There's hope for the leadership of Target. There's hope for those who hang the flags outside of their door and actually believe what that stands for. There's hope. It is the access to the gospel. And so friends, let's remember this as we post on social media, as we plan our boycotts or whatever you plan to do. Let this be the lens that you look at this through. This is not a political party thing. This isn't conservatism versus progressivism. This is, this is gospel issues. It is a tale as old as time, and it is a battle. But the king wins, and our objective is to gather as many to his cause as possible. May that be the application for us of Psalm 2. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for a psalm that I know I've read many times. 
but I've made new discoveries and I pray that everyone here has as well. We covered a lot. Once again, we moved from Genesis to Revelation. We dug into history and to grammar. We connected dots of facts to better understand God's plan for redemptive history. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will do what I cannot do. And that is take these truths and to the degree that you agree with them, would you bury them in our hearts? Would you cause them to take root? Would you cause them to flourish and produce fruit? Not for us, O Lord, but for the sake of your son. May we gain hope and help. May we gain confidence. May we gain perspective so that as we live in this this crazy and sad world, May we keep the main things the main things. May our end game be your glory and pointing others to Christ. May we process this in a way that honors you. May we meditate on your word day and night. And in so doing, prove ourselves that because of Christ, we are members of the covenant community. Thank you, Lord. Cause application to take place in Jesus' name.